Can you feel him inside you? Because <laughs> I can. Yeah, he's good. Okay, the reading today is taken from Luke 14, and it's verse 25 to 35. The cost of discipleship. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned to them and said, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to rage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. They throw it away. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I would say this morning, but we've been worshipping so long, it's now become the afternoon. So, good afternoon. Um, in case we haven't met before, in case you're new, or, or in case uh, you forgot, due to my own absences, my name is Paddy, um, one of the curates here. It's been a great privilege to, to serve here in the churches and uh, here in the community. In recent months, I've... Uh, had the great privilege of also serving across the fields in our neighboring parishes as well as they've been without a vicar. So, um, but I have to say, it is such a joy, and a joy to be back with you, worshipping amongst you who've come to become my family, uh, uh, but also uh, in a very different style maybe to... Uh, they're ministering other ways. But in case you're wondering, gosh, that was quite a, um, a handbrake turn from a seemingly quite happy, clappy worship. There was lots of smiles. There was even dancing and ribbon flowing. And then um, we have got very serious Bible reading. Over the last, I, it's been a while, so I can't even remember when we began. A while ago, it might have been 2022, we started journeying through the entire Gospel of Luke verse by verse, even the difficult ones, even the ones that kind of make us feel a bit uncomfortable. And um, so that's why you're here. Uh, next week, as Andy said, it's, um, it's a great joy to, 
to welcome Bruce. He is a, a dear old friend of um, James and Lou's, as well as being someone who has left a lasting impact and legacy in thousands and thousands of people. It is clear. But he gets, uh, he gets the good verses going through um, the parable of the prodigal son. And I get to tackle this meaty one that um, I know, I've, I've seen a fair few of you with it, like the bumper sticker and then it on the t-shirt. Um, so we'll get into it. But I wonder, as we begin, whether I could invite you to, to turn on your imagination for a moment. Maybe you want to close your eyes. But as this passage begins, it, is, it says how large crowds were traveling with him. Large crowds. Bigger than the crowd that we are gathered in today. Kind of from the rest of the gospel accounts, we, we can see that on some occasions, there was up to 12,000 people gathered around Jesus. That is significantly more than the entirety of Ashington Village. I don't know the population of other places locally, but I know even Ashington isn't that big. This is just the, the magnitude and enormity of the people who were captivated by the person of Jesus as he walked on earth. They were filled with awe and, and wonder at all the teachings that came from his mouth, all the miracles that he performed. But it begs the question from reading the rest of this passage, gosh, were they just admirers and spectators? Or were they disciples? Were they ones that, who would commit their life to following him? Or, or did they just enjoy the spectacle and the show? It was such good entertainment. I don't know what was on a terrestrial TV back then. But Jesus was a better option, apparently. But really, it begs the question, gosh, well, what am I? Are there some days where I do slip back into just being an admirer of Jesus or a spectator? Because Luke, he continues through his gospel narrative to make clear demarcations of those who are disciples and those who are just in the crowds following along. Because the Bible doesn't encourage or affirm spectatorship anywhere. It's always about participation. We are always saved into this family of faith. It's not a case of it's just like all the Christian stuff is reserved for them over there. It's all about participation. And I think really when we get into this passage, it is a sobering reminder, isn't it, of the demands of following Jesus, of being his disciple. And amidst all the, the enormity of the demands, I think I want to remind us it's such a, a gift and such a joy to be invited to such a thing. And so maybe, hopefully, as I've activated your imagination, you can picture this huge expanse, this large crowd. You then see the parallel. There's an enormity of people gathered, but there's also an enormity of the demands put upon them by Jesus as he invites them into something. And so you can't really sugarcoat it. There are always going to be a cost to following Jesus. And again, thinking in our imagination, I'm sorry, this is gonna like this is a terrible one to just ruin your imagination. Who's seen Forrest Gump? Yes. The way I picture this is that scene when he's still running and he's got his big beard and he's like running down the road in the desert and there is a great crowd following him. 
and then he stops and he turns to them, right? Sorry, I got like, I've just taken you along into a downward spiral. Let's bring it back to Jesus, someone who can help us. There's this deliberate physical act of Jesus. Like he's on his way somewhere. These chapters, he's on his way back to Jerusalem. He's traveling. People are following with him. They're wondering, gosh, like what is he going to teach about next? What, what miraculous sign is he going to perform next? You, I wonder kind of what, is the, what was the conversation? What was the whisper that Jesus overheard that he had to deliberately stop what he was doing and address? It's as if Luke is like putting this big footnote in the gospel and saying, God, this is important. When you read it, this is important. It also reminds us that with all the excitement, all these large crowds following Jesus, all the hype around it, Jesus wasn't afraid to have these difficult conversations, was he? He didn't shy away from it. He certainly wasn't afraid of possibly hurting someone's feelings or offending them by proclaiming the truth. I've been haunted by, by this phrase I heard someone say about a year ago. And he was like reminding us of this bold vision that we as the church have. But he said, gosh, do we need to grow in our capacity for pain? The pain that we might experience as we are rejected Maybe as we are disappointed, as we hold fast to the truth and the gospel of Jesus and people reject it and they reject us too. Do we need to grow in our capacity for pain that we might experience? But the thing that really challenged me, that I, quite, I, I don't use that word lightly, but it has haunted me, it says we need to grow in our capacity for pain, the pain that we might cause others as our proclamation witness to Jesus offends them. And Jesus is an inspiration to us, his capacity for pain. The fact that he is able to, to have these difficult conversations, able to confront lies with the truth from heaven. Because I think the people at the time, the same as when we, when we read these passages afresh today, we are reminded that when we encounter Jesus, we are confronted at the crossroads of decision. Are we going to follow Jesus or continue in my own way? Because um, James, he's been using that analogy like week after week. We, we start unpacking these passages and it's just like one punch after another. If it's not barraging us to the face, like we're getting one in the kidney and it's just getting it from all angles. You can't really avoid it. And Jesus, he constantly brings this challenge and correction to those around him. He responds to, to all the religious leaders, all their criticism, all their questions. He even observes those around him. And he calls out their, their errors, the ways in which they've got it wrong. And you've got to wonder, just like, gosh, why is, why is Jesus doing this? Is Jesus just rude? No. You see, in Jesus, we find God himself come down in human form. Jesus is the very embodiment of truth. Over Christmas, we would have heard that reading from John chapter 1 where we're reminded about who this Messiah is. 
It's like he who was with God in the beginning. Because it is through Jesus that all things were created. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. He is not coming to correct and challenge people because it's not quite to his liking. Jesus isn't challenging us because like, our preferences aren't aligning to his preferences. Jesus is trying to like, rein us back in and realign us onto a better way, a most excellent way trying to realign us to true life, where we have not only like missed the mark of some moral legalism, it's rather we have missed the mark on what it means to be human, and Jesus is trying to re-narrate and reveal to us what it would truly mean to, to walk and live as we were intended to. Does that make sense? And so Jesus, he comes, and his correction is inspired and, and bursts forth from his compassion for us talks about the fact that he looked upon people and we were sheep without a shepherd. That's why Jesus comes as the fulfillment. He is the good shepherd to lead us in paths of righteousness. That's his desire. But we look around in society, maybe even in like your wider family, and you see that there are many gospels being preached today, aren't there? Many of them usually center around the idea of, well, it's all about self-actualization and just like my, my true authentic self being manifested and being fed sufficiently. It's all about my feelings. What if we say, actually, we're not feeling beings, but rather we're, we're beings ordered to worship something. We need to be appropriately aligned. Or maybe more sinister, we think, oh, is this like the schemes of the devil? But what if we say just a pretty blunt, simple challenge of the choice that is laid out before us on a daily basis is not between God and the devil, but rather the choice is between God and ourselves. You can't really sugarcoat and avoid it in passages like this. There is a cost to following Jesus. I think I've recounted this phrase probably a few too many times. That sounds like a broken record, but this guy was giving a... Um, group of school children, a tour around the church. He was telling them about all the architecture, all the stained glass windows, and essentially he, good evangelical, like tells them about the kingdom of heaven. And so a child raises her hand and she says, oh, well, how much does it cost to get in? As if it's Legoland. And he says, it'll cost you everything. No, it is entirely free, but it will cost you everything. Just ruined the punchline, I'm sorry. <laughs> It's entirely free, but it will cost you everything. That's the memorable line. But you know the funny thing about it? As Jesus, he, he lays out the, the true cost of following him, the true cost to, to entering into true life. Never once does Jesus apologize. He never once frames it as a negative. It's just a reality because every time we say yes to one thing, we're saying no to a thousand others, aren't we? We have very real limitations as humans. But Jesus, he never frames this cost as a negative. And amidst this very powerful, jarring language that he uses, gosh, you must even hate your, your family, your wife, life itself. 
Jesus is not adv advocating for like antagonism or, or hostility, but he's challenging those who would have ears to listen to a, a singular allegiance. He's calling them and inviting them to, to reorder their priorities appropriately. This is what true love means. It's not saying yes to everything. It's saying yes to the one thing that will actually fulfill and satisfy, the one thing that will actually lead us to true life. I was struck recently reading through the Minor Prophets and in the book of Haggai, the prophet, he, he comes to them with this word from God and, and God has essentially revealed to them that you've built yourself lovely homes, but my house the temple, the place to worship God, lies in ruins. And he says, give careful thought to your ways because you've, you've planted much, much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. He's just reminding them of the, the futility of living life apart from God. It's just a fact. It's not that it's so much wrong, it's the fact that it doesn't work, does it? You put on clothes, but you're still not warm. Jesus is it's that challenge of reordering our priorities, of wherever we find our identity, wherever we invest our energy in, we still have to elevate Jesus above it all. All those things that are Oftentimes, they're still good things. Jesus has to be the priority above them, even our family, our work, all that forms our identity, maybe, like our sexuality, our political preferences. Maybe it's our fad diet or our hobby. I know James like, went hard after it, fishing. I'm sorry to those fishers amongst you. But God still has to be more important. He is the priority. And amidst a passage like this, like I said, it was quite a handbrake turn. It seemed to be quite an atmosphere of joy and dancing beforehand. Then we get into the Bible and it's like, oh my gosh, clinging on for dear life. Where's the good news? Where's the benefit to it? You see, when we recognize the magnitude of the cost, we recognize the magnitude of the reward. Okay? If you remember nothing else, if you're making notes, this is like it in one sentence. Great is the cost of following Jesus. Even greater is the reward. Because something's value is reflected in its price. But it is ratified by someone's willingness to pay it. Okay? You see, Jesus, he lays out the cost to, to following him, to becoming a disciple but I would also remind us that 2,000 years of church witness reveals that the reward is even greater still. Because life with God is that pearl of great price. It is that thing that is worth selling everything we have with joy. That's what we read about in Matthew's gospel. You sell it with joy to take hold of something which the reward is so much greater, isn't it? And this is what we find in Jesus. Because life with Jesus, following him, being a disciple to him, it realigns our, our very existence. 
because nothing else satisfies, nothing else seems to work, it's all futile, but in Jesus we find the one that, that does satisfy, that is true drink, true food. Jesus is the one that brings us true comfort, provides us an identity that all a lifetime of work could never achieve. It's where we find freedom, where we find healing. And so this invitation that we perpetually have laid out in front of us is not just to yet another social club that may or may not do good things for the community. It's not just another form of therapy. The invitation is to discipleship and it's to the person of Jesus. The invitation to discipleship is to have a life of order in which there's a singleness of, of allegiance and vision. It's in Jesus, we have an end goal in which our life is orientated towards. Jesus is that true North Star. Jesus is the rainbow in which there actually is a pot of treasure at the end. I can make that joke, so my name's Paddy. <laughs> you see, discipleship to Jesus is a direction of travel and locomotion in which the wheels of our lives are set towards the person. I heard someone define discipleship this way. They said, a disciple is someone who spends time with a master to listen, to hear, to watch, to observe. Do we spend time with Jesus? Do we give Jesus time to speak to us? We're very good at, in our prayers, giving Jesus an opportunity to listen to us, aren't we? A disciple is someone who spends time with a master to listen, to hear, to watch, to observe, to be transformed. Are we willing to change? Are we willing to accept his transformation and be transformed, to be disciplined in order to become like him, the master? That's the end goal. It's not just to fulfill a bunch of tick boxes, it's to, to grow and be transformed that we might resemble Jesus. I almost think, you know what, let's just call it what it is. Like the Christian claim is highly arrogant, isn't it? Like our end goal is to, to emulate Jesus, to walk this earth in the same way that he did. And I wonder how many of you also get the same response. I know I've got it from, to be honest, even clergy colleagues, people from like other churches, definitely got it from family who aren't walking with Jesus. They say, gosh, Paddy, you're a bit intense, aren't you? taking it all a bit too seriously. Like, let's just calm down, mate. And maybe critics will say, you know what, let's, get, let's not get hung up on all this discipline. Gosh, you guys fast. I thought you were New Covenant. Let's not get hung up on discipline or purity or holiness. Like, isn't that what grace is all about? Have you got that before? Gosh, it's just the academic, like maybe theolo theological part of my brain is like, that is a misappropriation of Martin Luther's doctrine of justification by faith. <laughs> right? And as much as that sounds like really pretentious and academic, but it's true. Like Bonhoeffer, when he wrote his, his book, The Cost of Discipleship, his, uh, his opening chapter kind of tackles this head on he says, gosh, like how, how much has this, this gift from Martin Luther been distorted and perverted in us? 
So the grace of God is so beautiful, but it is a costly grace. It's what he writes about. If you don't know what you're going to read this year, read Bonhoeffer. That's a great book. Because he asked this question. He's like, are we seeking just for our, our sins to be justified? Or do we actually desire for, for the entirety of our being to be transformed? That's the question. Yeah, last summer, I was crippled with um, this eczema all up my arm. I hadn't had eczema for like 25 years. Came back. And I used every ointment. I was lathering myself in nappy cream, baby oil, like rubbing chamomile tea bags on myself. Like none of it worked, maybe for a few minutes. And then just like the scratching would come back. And I'd literally just stand there like shaking because that was the only like way I could ease it. And then until some bright spark said, have you ever tried just taking an antihistamine? <laughs> One tiny little pill. But it was about, actually, I needed something to heal me from within. It wasn't just something on the surface to be washed away. I needed to be transformed from within. I'm getting convicted from Roger and Rachel here being like, that's not how antihistamines work. <laughs> but like, the analogy isn't perfect. It just hints towards it. The grace of God, it, it is there to transform us from the inside out, not just to cover up and wash away our sins. It is costly grace. There is a cost because we have to follow someone else, not ourselves. But you know what the grace is? Do we get to follow Jesus? You know what the cost is? The cost is your entire life all your comfort, maybe even your security. But you know what the grace is? That we find true life. That actually in Jesus we are born again. You know what the cost of all this is? It cost God everything. You know what the grace is? That God looked at you and I and thought, you know what, that is a price I am willing to pay for you and I. I don't say that to guilt trip you, but just to, maybe when you look at yourself in the mirror and you think, gosh, I'm unworthy. No, God was willing to pay quite a price for you. The cost is, is walking this narrow way with Jesus, with limitations and things that we might actually say no to. And the grace is the fact that a life with Jesus is better. It's the way that leads to life. Yeah, there is a cost to discipleship, but the reward is so much better. And so he lays all this out for those following him. So are you going to be a spectator or are you going to be my disciple? And you wonder whether he then turns to the select few that really were his disciples. Really saying, guys, you need to stay salty. It points to this, this imagery of the salt that they would have used at the time from the Dead Sea in that region. It wasn't just pure salt. It would have been mixed with all sorts of other things, elements. And it would have been quite easy for the actual salt, the value in that mixture, to be washed away with water. How easy is it is the salt of our lives to be washed away through the challenges, through the day-to-day -day life? It challenges our complacency. Maybe it challenges our predisposition to make excuses, to justify our preferences and reject change and ignore that gift of repentance. 
But he's reminding us we need to nurture this salt within us. We need to stay salty. After me, I am, I say this in an attempt to try and honor many of you. I'm inspired by those amongst us who are probably more experienced in years. Maybe you've received a free bus pass. But the fact that there are so many amongst you that continue to be this shining example of someone who, despite all the years of walking with Jesus, you know what, you wake up every day and you say, I'm going to burn all flame for Jesus. So just thank you, not just for the example to me, but the, for the example for, for so many. And you remind us that actually it does matter how we live. It does matter that we wake up and say, you know what, I'm going to live a life consecrated to Jesus. I'm going to pursue in, in all my, my ways, purity and holiness and righteousness, honesty, integrity. I'm going to pursue justice. Because how we live, it matters. In the same way that Jesus would have employed this imagery of salt because salt was so important. Yeah, it's about flavor, enhancing food. I somehow used to believe this lie that salt gave you cholesterol, so I stayed away from it. And then when I married my wife, Sarah, I realized that salt is like the foundational food group of her diet. And I re you know what I realized? She was right. Just like, give me a little bit of food with my salt every day. I digress, because I, have, I haven't eaten properly all week, and I'm just thinking of lunch. How we live matters, right? I still like reel it back in. Salt's important, it brings flavor. It also preserves life, right? It fertilizes. Salt is so important to all of life flourishing. That's why it reminds us, stay salty. What about that imagery you get in Luke chapter 3 when it's all about like, the way we take it is like, let's not be lukewarm. Let's not be apathetic like the Laodicean church. But really, Jesus is saying, you're neither hot nor cold. And he's pointing to like, the, the mountain waters that would come down and they were cold and refreshing. That was their purpose. They were to refresh people. Or, or like the hot spring waters that would have been nourishing and healing. It's like you're neither healing, you're neither refreshing. You have, you have forgotten your very purpose. That's a reason to stay salty is so actually we can impact the world because the world needs a better story, both proclaimed and lived out because Jesus is the antidote. He isn't just one of many good solutions. He is the solution. So in a, in a world that's full of anxiety and fear, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the one that satisfies, the one that fulfills all our restless searching, he is the antidote. Stay salty, brothers and sisters, not in a bitter way. We talk frequently about how we believe that God is, is calling the church to be distinct, to be set apart. I think James used the language of cleaving ourselves from culture, right? We are to be holy and pure, to witness Jesus. And I know last year in 2023, we, we talked a lot about orthodoxy. Actually, the challenges we faced, the decisions we had to make were because much of the church, particularly the Church of England, was straying away from orthodoxy and aligning itself with the world. What if I remind us, actually, you know what, there are two types of orthodoxy that we have to adhere to. 
There is like the orthodoxy of doctrine, what we believe, this tradition that we have received through the scriptures that we try and live out, but also the orthodoxy of community, which is that lived out expression of our faith. This is the, the salt. This is the flavor of Jesus, the very essence of it that the world will get a taste of. And just like I did, I realized that my wife was right. Maybe the world will see that we were right after all. Because what good is it if we say that, you know what, God is king to be highly exalted and enthroned above all things, but we don't appear to revere him or fear him in our life. What happens if we say, you know what, God, he welcomes all people to himself, but when people come to church, maybe for the first time, maybe they're visiting, they don't actually feel welcomed. What if we continue to say, you know what, God, he forgives all sin, invites us to repentance, to change, brings us new life in him, but when people do turn from the old ways and come and be a part of our community, they still feel judged. They still feel like they're not good enough. All these things, what if you say that God is, is holy and righteous and his ways lead to true life, but all they see is the same immorality, the same hypocrisy that they see everywhere else? The question before us is always, gosh, like, Yes, great is the cost, but even greater is the reward. So, Brothers and sisters, will, will you burn for Jesus like never before in 2024? Will our beliefs lead us to live radically different as if Jesus really is Lord of all? I think James and Luke, and I introduced this last week, this personal challenge to us. What if we truly take stock of our hearts and invite the Holy Spirit to have a reformation of our heart, to do the deep work, to actually address what it is within us. What if we radically pursue Jesus, both corporately and personally, and we continue to build these altars of of prayer and worship? Will we stand firm? unmovable in the truth, continue to to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord? Will we taste and see that that God really is as good as they say he is? Will we put him on display so other people will taste and see his goodness too? Great is the cost, but even greater is the reward. There's this relatively famous poem by Marianne Williamson. Her closing lines, she says this, she says, as, as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. And as we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Let's invite this reformation of our heart. So we burn for him. As we close, I... Earlier I mentioned just the, the personal inspiration I found from reading the prophet Haggai. And so it's this challenge, it's saying, right, rather than prioritizing building your house, will you build my house? Not Paddy's house, the Lord's house. And 
and it's inspiring. We do look to those that have walked before us as an example to, to emulate. It reveals to us what's possible. It describes the way in which all the, the religious leaders, it says, the whole remnant people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Everyone heard this word of correction, of challenge, and they obeyed it. And what they found in return was, was God continuing to speak over them, encouragement of, of reminding them that I am with you. This is what it says. And then the Lord stirred up the spirit of all the people. It may sound a lot like we need to do more, we need to do more. We can't do anything if God isn't with us, can we? We need the Holy Spirit to come and stir up something within us. This is just like a lovely ideal to talk about on a Sunday for a few minutes longer than maybe I should have. But actually without God, it remains just an idea that we talk about once a week. If the Spirit stirs it up within us, that's when actually this salt starts to impact and infiltrate our communities, our societies, our wider families. Does that sound exciting? Why don't we stand? Great is the cost, but even greater is the reward. I've talked a lot about things haunting me, but over lockdown, I heard this anecdote of, of church history, probably some of the darker years of the Christian church. They talked about um, through the Crusades, they used to baptize these knights, these soldiers. And the story goes that as they were baptized, they would be baptized in full armor, seemingly to protect them for all that they were embarking on. But these soldiers, they would be fully emerged, immersed, immersed, dunked. Let's use the theologically accurate word, dunked. But they would hold their sword above the water. And this imagery is like, it's not reserved for that moment in history. You've got to wonder, like they, they were saying, God, you can have my whole life. Protect me as I put on this metal physical armor, may your armor protect me as well. You can have everything except this sword and all that I will do with it, isn't it? And really the challenge before us, this great cost of discipleship is saying, actually, you know what, what is, what is my sword? Not just the things that may inflict harm and death on others. What is it that I've kept from God? I've said, God, you can have everything. But actually, you know what, I'm going to look after my wife. I'm going to look after my kids. God, you can have everything, you can have my whole life, but I'm probably just going to do some like worldly things with my wallet and my finances. And like Monday to Friday, like that's my time and I'll give you evenings and weekends. It's always the challenge of will we allow, not just allow, but we put Jesus back on the throne of our lives and allow him to be the king. want it for a few minutes now. Let us count the cost of following Jesus. Because yes, there is a cost. 
Great is the cost, but even greater is the reward. We didn't quite plan it out this way, but there is a throne and a cross down at the front. But your way of expression, whether you want to come down, physically express the way, something that I have withheld from God in the past, I want to give to God afresh today, entrust to God all that I try and hold on for myself. Yet another opportunity. Say, Jesus, you are the king. You are our savior. You're a friend. You are so many things to us. And I entrust my whole life to you that I may be transformed and renewed by all that you are. So Holy Spirit, come amongst us now. Just like you've done so frequently before in history, in our lives, stir up our spirit afresh. By your help, may we love you even more, follow you closer, proclaim your word and your truths with boldness. So Holy Spirit, come, blow in this place. This past week, one of the one encouragement that, that I had, particularly Wednesday night, I continued to see these seeds, reminding of all these seeds that maybe you have sown in God's name. Maybe seeds that have been sown in your life and those around you. And where all earthly perspectives would say, actually, you know what, those seeds have long died just heard God reminding us that those seeds will once again bloom and flourish and bring life. I feel like an encouragement for those people who, who maybe years gone by, you have sensed this calling to something in particular. God had given you a vision, but seemingly that vision has come to nothing. Maybe particularly apt as we go through the parables in Luke chapter 15, about things that have been lost loved ones, children that have strayed away from the Lord, those seeds that have been planted will once again yield fruit. So Holy Spirit, continue to stir our spirits within us. God, we don't want to be spectators or just onlookers. We want to follow you fully. 
God, may you as our bright, shining North Star, Brian, shine even brighter. Continue to inspire us, Lord. Renew us by your strength. We thank you, Lord, that you are the true food, true drink. We thank you for your work. Continue to sustain us, we pray. I can't promise you, but I want to encourage us to do something before all our children return. And maybe this joyous chaos may uh, envelop us once again. So I can't promise you how long you have for this activity. Why don't you turn to to someone around you and tell them actually what it is that, that God is stirring up in your heart today. Maybe what are those seeds? What are you inspired by this morning? Does that sound all right? Well, God, thank you for all that you are. Thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for the vision that you instill with us. But more so, thank you for your presence that goes before us, behind us, with us. Thank you that you are the one that gives us strength to walk this path with you. So be with us, we pray. As we go, may we go with the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. May it rest upon us. this day and forever. Amen. Amen. When you grab someone while you have a chance.